Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and Chris Whitten, and you can find out more about us at horrormakesushappy.com. Today's guest is R.K. Kadick, who is an author best known for The Phenomenon <clears throat> and the sequel, which is still in progress, called The Fall of Man. Um, I think you you mentioned the, a third book, Apple White. Is that finished or is it still in progress? It, it is finished. Uh, it okay. is it is uh, stuck in an editing loop trying to get everything clear cut for for publishing. But it is yeah. available in its full raw form, the, the rough draft online. On the uh, Reddit subreddit, RK Kinnick subreddit. Yeah, subreddit. Yeah. All right, uh, we will link to. There's an RKK set, uh, subreddit and another subreddit for the phenomenon. We'll link to both of those in the bio on the Horror Makes Us Happy website. Um, we do know that RK is actually out at a restaurant for the Wi-Fi. Uh, bear with us on the audio. We'll try to fix as much of that as we can in post, but it's something that we'll just have to deal with. Um, so before we get started, um, was there anything in particular you wanted to plug? Uh, well, uh, of course, there is the Phenomenon Pod, which is the podcast of Lucille Creative. It's available on, uh, you know, it's on YouTube, it's on uh, Google Music, it's it's just about everywhere. Um, you just have to look for it. Okay. Uh, let's see. So before we get started, a little information for the lit- listeners, um, some trigger warnings. We are going to be talking about horror-related stuff, with which could involve anything: murder, rape, suicide, child abuse, f bombs, uh, cursing. So, if you're not prepared for that, please take care of yourself and then come back when you're ready. Um, RK, for your information, in the interview, we'll be sort of asking the same sets of questions in three different ways, covering your childhood, teenage years, and adulthood, uh, to find out what it is that your connection to things related to horror. Uh, we're coming at these things from multiple angles because sometimes that triggers memories that you might have forgotten about. Um, but that said, it's not meant to be a therapy session. So if anything pops up that you don't want to answer, just say you'll pass on that and we'll move on. Um, so starting with childhood, uh, what were some of your earliest memories of scary things? <laughs> well, uh, honestly, I think the very first scary memory that I had was a nightmare when I was actually a very small child. Uh, mm-hmm. I was okay. in, a, in, a, in the home of a, one of our my, my babysitters, and uh, walked through a kitchen. There was a grate on the floor, part of the heating duct system. Uh, the edge of it was upturned, sliced through my foot, and I fell down to the floor. And thousands upon thousands of cockroaches started pouring out. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a lovely little dream that stuck with me for probably thirty years. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's one just of those that sticks with you. How old were you when you yeah. had this? Uh, probably about five or six. I can already see some connections to the phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, swarms of things devouring you, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the powerlessness, the inability to do anything about it, all you, everything yeah. is just consumed around you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else? Uh, well, there's one that I suppose my parents and and some therapist would probably say was bad, but walking in uh, to my parents watching the original interview with the vampire, uh, okay. the theater scene, okay. where the woman is devoured alive, alive on stage, that stuck with me. But, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of course, it hasn't stuck with me so much as horror, as much as in my later years I came to appreciate uh, something of Anne Rice's vision for vampires. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, that was probably those two, the nightmare and that, that sequence where I was just utterly horrified at somebody being eaten alive, uh, were, were the defining horror moments of my younger years. Okay. Um, and so you already kind of commented on the, uh, nightmare, uh, next question being, how did you feel about them at the time? You were afraid of the nightmare. Uh, I think you also did say you were afraid of the vampire scene, but, and then you, but you came to come to appreciate it differently later, but it, mm-hmm. in childhood, you were afraid of it. Well, even then, I, because I just walked in and they yelled at me to go back to bed, it wasn't so much a, a, a much, I didn't understand they were vampires really at the time. Uh, okay. I just saw a woman who was vulnerable and afraid, uh, stripped literally and figuratively of all defense. And just utterly consumed by those who were on stage, cannibals in in my mind at the time, not even vampires. Mm -hmm. But uh, well, yeah, because I guess at that age you don't really know about the lore of vampires yet; you just know it's a person. And I hadn't seen the rest of the movie yet either. So (laughs) true. Well, yeah, out of context. Why are they eating them? Get out of the room. Well, mommy, daddy, why, why are you enjoying this? <laughs> Go to bed. That's why. Strangely <laughs> um, enough, the response verbatim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at least your parents were responsible enough to tell you to go to bed. We've talked to a couple of people. I think even uh, Steve had an, a similar experience with watching scary movies with parents. And yeah, I think a couple, two or three times so far now, it's been like, yeah, they didn't care. They just let me watch it. So. It does sound like at least your parents were responsible enough to know. No, nah, this is this is not kid stuff. You you get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, anything well, else? Go ahead. Well, that actually does bring to mind. Uh, speaking about parents telling me to get out, um, was the scene in Clockwork Orange, where uh, uh, Roddy McDowell and uh, his his friends find the gentleman and his wife and proceed to uh, file them both in different ways was another scene I, mm. I i actually watched secretly by by peeking around the corner while my parents huh. watched hmm. it. good timing couldn't have been the car racing scene or the milk bar it had to be <laughs> yeah i happened to jump in right at the right time <laughs> you know and here my dad was worried about me seeing like poltergeist and well i was gonna say an- animation tits on uh on heavy metal <laughs> and he's you know hmm. Oh, strange counterpoint. My parents actually introduced me to heavy metal at about nine years old. <laughs> they had no okay. problem with that one. I, I, don't know, I, I, I agree with that one. Kind of like your parents so far. They're good. <laughs> well, it was... Uh, Son, I'll, this I'll is go ahead and tell you just soon be called... Go ahead. No, please. I don't mean to talk over you. I have a bad habit of it. <laughs> That's quite all right. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I was going to say, well, my parents... Uh, were a rather unique pair. My mother was, uh, she went to college for everything but her finals. She had to go spring her sister out of jail and missed her finals and so did not graduate. But she was online to be a geneticist. Well, my father has been an auto mechanic and a biker. So uh, I've gotten very different experiences, especially since one was from the South, Panama City, Florida, and one was very much a Northern Yankee from Ohio. Yeah, I can see how that uh, would get you a lot of different experiences. Two different Very much. Raised on cold sweet tea and hot tea. Uh, raised on grits and whole wheat. Or, or cream of wheat. All right, we got a grits fan in the house. It's a very bipolar mm-hmm. breakfast food. Not, not yes. a lot, or very, very polarizing breakfast food. Yes. Yeah, I didn't have a good experience with that. Because I, I grew up 
my child early childhood was up north and then I came down here in middle school mm-hmm. and uh I was visiting down here. I I hadn't moved down here yet. I was just visiting and I went out to breakfast with the family and somebody had ordered grits and I thought it was mashed potatoes. <laughs> and and so I asked for some cuz I love mashed potatoes and mm-hmm. I was not prepared for that texture. <laughs> Yeah, so, it's a little different. It's uh, it's got a skin that mashed potatoes don't have. Indeed. Well, not only that, but the you know there's a texture inside it. It's like a gr- literally gritty uh, mm-hmm. texture to it that potatoes don't have. And I don't even know that I maybe if I had them now as an adult, I might like them. But I think it was it, because I was unprepared for that. I didn't like it. Going back to your co- your cockroach thing, when I was in my 20s, we had a potluck at one of the places I was working. It was a call center. And somebody brought in um, deviled eggs, again, which I love. I had never had deviled eggs that had relish in them. Hmm. I don't know if either of you have, but I've yeah. I've never heard of deviled eggs with relish in them. Yeah, it's... Um... That's a new yeah, one. apparently, apparently that's the thing. makes them both ways. So I've, I've seen it both ways. Okay. I had in my twenties, that's the first experience I'd had to them and you didn't see them in the uh, filling. So you didn't know that they were there until you put one in your mouth and you feel something hard. That's not it, like deviled eggs. That's it's not supposed to feel that way. So I immediately yeah. spit it into a trash can. Cause I'm thinking, you know, there was a bug in the thing or something. So yeah, turned out it was just relish, which was better than it being what I was afraid of it being. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So you were, um, you were definitely creeped out by some of this stuff. What was your uh, emotional response to that scene in clockwork orange? To be honest at that point, curiosity. Um, I didn't quite know what I was seeing at all. Okay. Um, and I remember uh, a day later is they eventually did keep, catch me peeking around the corner. I watched it for probably even 45 minutes. When they caught <laughs> me the next day, I drew a picture of a robot with wires connecting two panels like uh, stove lids coming off of its chest. Hmm. And of course, they completely misinterpreted that being something completely different coming off of a woman's chest. Uh, but I think I was trying to interpret it through the other things that I was allowed to watch, which were mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. like uh, the old Star Trek, the original series, uh, Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone especially, really. Mm-hmm. Got me. That's where I got the robots from. Okay. But uh, I was trying to make sense of what I had seen, not understanding, you know, nudity yeah. and sexuality at that point. Okay. That's, that's funny. It's almost a, a different angle on the whole, like, uh, worry of accidental exposure of uh, children to adult material and the fact that, I don't know, it's it should always be avoided of course if if possible but sometimes they're too young to understand what is happening so yeah you just looked at that like i don't know it's a robot it it had parts i didn't have there you go (laughs) um yeah that's one way to put it (laughs) okay um so in your childhood years did you have um how can i say this was there a friend or family member or multiple friends or family members who were fans of horror related stuff that uh, kind of got you into that? Or was it that Did completely alien to you at that age? Uh, not in my much younger years, not in my early childhood, thinking 10 and below. In my teenage years, I remember very fondly a friend of mine by the name of Lee Stanton, who 
when we were discussing books and literature, came to school the next day and thrived shoved three collections of H.P. Lovecraft in my arms and told me not to give them back until I'd read every word. <laughs> okay. So I, I made a note of that. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> let me see. So as far as the fear or curiosity related to your experiences at that point, nothing out, outlandish, nothing that made you uh, change your behavior or any phobias. I mean, I know you mentioned the, the cockroaches thing, but... Not a literal phobia. Nothing that I would cause a, see as traumatic as far as horror movies, horror experiences, monsters, anything like that. Um, okay. In fact, to, to this date, I think I only have two true phobias. One of them is very much logic-based. The other is uh, completely illogical. Uh, okay. And the, that is heights, which makes a great deal of sense because I'm only afraid of them after about 20 feet. And then um, submechanophobia, for a fear of man-made objects under the water. Hmm. Okay, that's that's a unique one. I've not heard of that one yet. Oh yeah. So what was what was the name of the phobia you mentioned? Submechanophobia. Hmm. Oh, okay, mechanations subwater. Yes, that's right. I know big words. One of Chris's comments uh, after our last call was. Um, one of the things that he enjoys about these podcasts is it gives him a chance to break out some of the big words and say, see, I do know some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. I got yeah, and imagine words. interviewing writer after writer after writer or horror film buff after horror film buff. You probably have plenty of chances to ex- expand the vocabulary in new and interesting, exciting, terrifying ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you dress up for Halloween? Yeah. Uh, not this past year. No, no, no. I mean, in childhood. Oh, yes, very much. <laughs> yeah, not this last Halloween. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you have any favorite costumes? Any least favorite? Um, did, as I said, I, I watched uh, the original series of Star Trek with my father, and then when the, the next generation came out, I went for, William, went for Halloween as William Riker for three years running. Hmm. Um, three years, okay. Yeah. Uh, same costume, in I fact. can get a little, little quick. Well, I mean, if you like it, you like it. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I was I was a fan of that. Um, other than that, biggest uh, most memorable costumes I had when I was a child was as a mummy. You know, the, okay. the stereotypical bandaged, wrapped, undead sort of thing. Uh, Only um, my uncle. Toilet paper. Had, well, no, we actually used bandages. We 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 went the whole hog. We actually got excuse me wrap, wrappable. He did bandage. say his mother was going for something in the uh, medical field. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So you had access access to actual bandages. Um, we used actual bandages. They they yellowed them in a in a in a solution of water and weak tea. Um, wrapped them hmm. all about my body. And my uncle Ed, who lived upstairs from us at the time, uh, is a has been i'm not he's not currently a theater quality makeup artist with with like the full no, trunk nice. of makeup and prosthetics so he did everything to make my nails you know outgrown and long and my hands all shriveled and if the bandages came off my face my face was gaunt drawn and gaunt my teeth were yellow i mean nice. he went all, all gone it was it was great nice and you enjoyed the process of putting on all that stuff well, not so much putting it on, but revealing it when like the bandage was come off my face, mm-hmm. and they were expecting to see you know some innocent little eight nine year old kid, and instead they'd see a, a <laughs> yeah. walking corpse, you know. And I'm sure your uncle probably enjoyed that as well. <laughs> uh, very much so. Yes. 
And I, I got to ask, since you uh, did dress up as Riker, how did you sit in a chair when dressed as Riker? <laughs> oh, you always got to swing that right leg over. Got to swing the leg over. Sweep the leg. <laughs> yes. Of course, it was strange being the only uh, child at that age with a beard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like a, it's like the pirate outfit, you know, it's just mm-hmm. kid costumes that have beards. Oh, no, because, because as I said, he had the theater quality stuff. I had like an actual like glued on <laughs> false nice. beard, like, like it was well coiffed and it looked real. <laughs> yeah. It, it wasn't just grease paint. That makes no. it a little awkward. Yeah. 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 That, that could be a little weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was there a time uh, where you were ever actually terrified of something as a child in reality? Yes. Uh, Do you want to share it? Oh, yeah. I'm an open book, guys. You guys ask whatever you want. The answer is going to be yes. I'll share that. Um, Okay. When did you kill John F. Kennedy? No. (laughs) There was was a lot of hesitation. (laughs) Not myself. Anyway, um, we lived in a house uh, up north. I, I moved from up north to down south when I was 16. We had a house up north in my early childhood, which was two stories, and it had a basement, a full basement. And you could build another another apartment down in the basement. But um, previous residents, before we moved in, had gone through and, and stripped as much of the wiring out of the basement as possible. So the lighting down there was limited to one tiny, overworked 30-watt incandescent. And uh, so, of course, the basement was full of shadows and spiders. And... Uh, the house was on sort of a, a hill or a rise, so the front door was even with the ground. But uh, to go out the back door, you had to go down a set of back steps where you were only a split level off the basement and then out into the backyard. Right. So that basement terrified the living daylights out of me. I was always certain that there was some type of giant spider or other bug of some kind down there waiting to eat me, whether it was a centipede or a millipede. I took to the habit of going out the front door and walking around the house rather than just taking a six-step travel down the stairs <laughs> out the back door. As one does. Yeah. Sometimes As the longer does. path is uh, the better path. Mm-hmm. Or the, the safer, safer path. One. Yeah. <laughs> They're more preferred. Uh, so in your childhood, would you say that uh, horror made you happy at that age, or was it still like uh, a mixture? It was a mixture. I mean, there were certain things that I that I loved. Like, I loved Ghostbusters. No matter how, how scary the ghosts got, I, I loved them. But at the same time, other things, like giant bugs, or millions of smaller bugs, or dark spaces, uh, and certainly anything underwater, it was a hard pass for me. I can understand that. My uh, my aunt and uncle, one of my aunts and uncles, owned a, a sailboat. They, um, they sold their house in Chicago and sailed the boat through the Great Lakes out to uh, New York and then down to the Caribbean and around the Caribbean for a couple of years and then settled in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I would go visit them in Fort Lauderdale on vacation. And sometimes we would go out into the water. And and I definitely have a, a healthy fear of being in water that is deeper than I can stand in, you know, mm-hmm. Um whether there's anything in the water, man-made or not, uh, you know, just the idea of, I know that if my feet were on the floor, you know, on the ground or whatever, under this water, my head would not be above water. That's, that's enough for me to, to not be completely thrilled with that. (laughs) Um, but I think that's a healthy fear. So you mentioned in your teenage years, you were introduced to Lovecraft. Um, what other horror related stuff do you remember is being impacting you? Uh, Oh, uh, teenage years is really where I grew into 
grow into my love of horror. So this is this is kind of wrong. Um, okay, <laughs> we've got time. <laughs> I, I was always a big reader, more than than films or movies, really, in my youth. So for me, my real origins of my love of horror come from authors: Stephen King, okay. Dean Koontz, David Carpenter, H.P. Lovecraft, and his contemporaries Poe. It's just uh, all of them really sort of attacked my my mentality and my understanding of the world and literature at the same time. I think probably the first real horror book uh, that I got into uh, was a loan from my best friend Jesse Kellogg, and it was called Dragon Tears by Dean Koontz. Okay. And it it went the way the bugs do. There was uh, the main villain was somebody who could control things from a distance, and he used it to create what he thought of as golems, constructions of earth, mud, anything, to form her horrifying things to, to accomplish his goals. Part of it was a description of this monster that was just earth and mud and all the creatures that live in the earth and mud and nicker and the dark, things crawling in and out of its flesh as it pursued the people that it was after. That really hooked me. Did you read... Um... You mentioned Anne Rice and Vampire uh, Interview with the Vampire. Did you end up reading that? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But that came later. I'm saying that, you know the early hook was all the the real horror writers, as opposed to sort of gothic romance or gothic horror that Anne Rice sort of dipped into. Yeah. The reason that I ask is because I remember for me one of the things that I remember in that book was there was a a scene where they talk about one of them being buried in the earth and basically drawing all of the creatures, the dark things to him mm-hmm. to then feed off of them and regain his power. Indeed. Yeah. Lestat after he was burned. Right. When you mentioned the golems and things crawling in and out, that made me think of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Insects, creepy crawlies, small reptiles like salamanders and things like that. They've always had a certain power in my mind. Um, as something that's utterly alien to the human ex- experience. They don't think like us. They don't live like us. They don't see like us. They don't smell like us. They don't experience right. the world like we do. And it's the closest thing to an extraterrestrial you can get on this planet. In a way, yeah. Like you say, they don't experience reality like we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why uh, Lovecraft went with all the tentacles and was also uh, elithids from D&D. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I'm a big player there. I play D&D. In fact, got something going on later tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't mention, nice. I mentioned to Chris that you had something going on tonight. Uh, he didn't specify, but it sounded like it was going to be a D&D campaign. It is. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I used to play D&D a bit when I was younger. Chris, uh, I think, partake in both D&D and 40K. Mm-hmm. Um, also a little bit of White Wolf, some Vampire the Masquerade. There you go. Um, so you mentioned a couple different authors here, Lovecraft, Stephen King, Carpenter, Coons, Poe. Um, at this point, it sounds like you are now not only experiencing some of the fear, but also some excitement or curiosity or pleasure at these authors and their works. Um, what do you, do you know what it was about those things that was drawing out these positive emotions? Well, I think. Maybe part of it was also that early teenage rebellion because mm-hmm. I was not allowed to have those books in school. If I went to school with those, the teachers saw them, they'd try to confiscate them. 
In fact, uh, my very first reading of The Stand was interrupted three quarters of the way through. And if you've ever seen a, a hard copy book of The Stand, it is a big, thick book. <laughs> is the book much better? Uh, well, it it is very similar to the miniseries they did way back when. I still have the miniseries on, on DVD. It's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. But I think they actually toned down some of the horror in the miniseries versus... Yeah, I mean, it was a made-for-TV movie. They kind of had to. Yeah, exactly. No, the book was, was very stimulating. And uh, Mrs. Clark, my eighth grade homeroom teacher, took it away from me and I'll never forget. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned contraband, mm-hmm. um, essentially. Was there anything else in particular that you found interesting about these things? Well, they, they spoke about the world in a different way. You know, the other books that I was reading mm-hmm. at the time as a young teenager, you know, even Goosebumps. Uh, which was ostensibly hard, but not really. Um, right. Still looked at the world as if every that it that people in it were us were basically good, and that the government was here to help you, and that school was to prepare you for life, and your employers uh, valued you for your time and your efforts and your skills. Everything else sort of played into that archetype of you know wholesome American life, and everything horror when completely different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government was not here to help you. They were here to look after their own interests and control you if at all possible, or utilize you if you were useful. Uh, school was designed to turn you into a good worker with corporations who needed you as workers, not as employees or as part of their family. Which is a lot like body snatchers, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, or they live. Talking about Carpenter. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was a, a, a way of, of course, sort of peeling back the skin and, and well, not literally, but that's a good uh, good pun here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, peeling back the uh, the surface and seeing something different underneath. That uh, there was another. Was it maybe Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits? Where uh, what am I thinking of? Or maybe it was some movie in the eighties where some somebody could see aliens, but nobody else could. Buckaroo Banzai. Ah, oh, yes, the lizard man. That's what it was. Huh. Always got to look out for the lizard man. Never saw that one. Buckaroo Banzai is good. I, I think it's on Amazon mm. Prime. You should check it out. <laughs> hmm. um, so you mentioned you did have uh, at least one friend who uh, shared this interest of horror-related stuff with you. Um, oh, yeah. Just one? Multiples? Multiples. Multiples, yeah. Um, in fact, my whole friends group is really responsible in my teenage years for getting me into horror and, and those sorts of literatures and fictions. Lee Stanton, of course, was the H.P. Lovecraft guy. He loved everything H.P. My friend Jesse uh, was a Stephen King fan. Uh, my friend Matt was uh, Dean Koontz. You know, they all had their, their particular favorites, with they, which they shared with me, sort of turned me on to horror here and there. So they were all readers, though? Very much. We were all big readers. We, we were the, the losers club of... of <laughs> we were we were the outcasts the geeks the ones who didn't get dates so you mentioned uh, a lot of reading going on but i haven't heard you mention any of the horror horror related comic books or magazines well he mentioned heavy metal i was thinking more like vampirella and eerie and creepy oh yeah or like uh well when i was a kid uh, i didn't really get into comics hmm uh, I guess I was really lucky in 
you know, I mentioned my aunt and uncle that went down to the Caribbean. Well, they packed up their house and one of my older cousins left her comic book collection to me. Well, not really to me, but she left it at my grandmother's house. Hmm. Hmm. We, we just lost him. Yeah. We lost Gaedic. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, before we lost connection, uh, we had commented about, uh, you didn't have any comic book stores near you, which, uh, impacted your ability to at least experience those. Um, mm-hmm. I had commented that, uh, I had an aunt and uncle that went down to the Caribbean. They packed up their house. My elder cousin left her comic book collection and I was able to read up on some of those. And some of those had some horror themed comics in there, like, uh, the witching hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but jumping back into interview proper, um, so you had mentioned that you had a whole friend group that was interested in a bunch of different horror authors. Um, mm-hmm. So it was good that you had some sort of a social, um, a social group that was, you know, bringing some positivity uh, to your enjoyment of horror. Uh, not only just you by yourself, but you know, having a group that you can talk about uh, what you like and don't like about them. Are you, were any, was anybody else in this group, uh, an inspiring author or not, not so much an aspiring author, uh, their artistic aspirations went different routes. Uh, okay. Jesse loved programming languages. He wanted to make video games. Uh, Lee was an artist. Uh, he could draw just about anything you might imagine. Uh, and his goal was actually to go into RPGs, uh, pen and paper RPGs, like Dungeons and Dragons and do the yes. art for, for their books. Um, Matt went as an adult, he went into photography, but it wasn't an interest when we were kids. So in your teenage years, did your, uh, exposure to any of these horror books introduce any new fears that you hadn't had earlier, or did it cause you to change your behavior in any way? People. I wasn't afraid of people before that point. I didn't think that people could accomplish horrific or inhumane cruel things and uh reading those works of fiction led me to more research works of non-fiction uh historical contemporary serial killers things of that nature and i learned that people aren't necessarily always good this is true when it comes down to it man is the most evil creature out there Mm. yeah the ultimate game not to say that also the best prey yeah, that's what I was trying to remember. Was it was there was it just called the game or was it there's more to it? I think it was just the game. What the one with Michael Douglas? Well, I think it was with the f- the film, but it was based on a short story. I'm trying to remember who wrote the short story. I think the short story was just the most dangerous game. Maybe it was the danger the most dangerous game. Yeah, most dangerous game. I think I think that's the story and I think the movie was just the game. I think you guys are right on that. Shoot? Uh, I don't think it was called Turkey Shoot, although there may be another one called that. There is. Um, it's a similar thing. It's like, you know, people uh, let loose in the woods, haunted by rich people that are crazy. Yeah. Read that in high school, and then we watched the uh, the film afterwards. Um, so did you continue participating in Halloween uh, into your teens? Uh, in a lesser manner. I didn't quite dress up as much. I would just throw together something in order to go get candy. Um <laughs> No, nothing. I I didn't intentionally try to look scary as much as I tried to look the part of whatever half-cocked idea had come into my head at the time. Um, 
well, you know, my teenagers, I was born in 1984. My teenagers, the early part of them was the late 90s. And so I remember one Halloween, I did nothing but uh, put on black sweatpants, a black sweatshirt, a balaclava, and uh, a cardboard box and pretended I was a uh, solid snake. I'd knock on the door and then drop into the cardboard box. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, this is a, an example of where it's not fair that when our, our teenagers, uh, in our teenage years, smartphones weren't prevalent because you could totally have a smartphone in that situation and have that sound when someone discovers you queued up. Like when they when they open the box, like, wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact, I think I'm going to pass that on to my son for this Halloween. Dude, <laughs> totally do it. Yeah. And, and have him have the sound queued up. It'd be perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, any other costumes that you remember or least favorites? Least favorite had to be the year that my parents tried to go all PC as far as uh, Halloween costumes go and uh, tried to make me go as a clown. Rainbow <laughs> okay. body jumpsuit, red nose, white face paint. I was a teenager looking at girls. This was not a pleasant experience. I can relate. No. I can relate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My my least favorite comic or my least favorite costume also involved being dressed as a clown. <laughs> You're a little bit fun. younger, and yours is a bit more uh, traumatic, though. This is just like, mom and dad, this is lame. Yeah, yeah. In my case, I was God. I must have been either pre-K or first or second grade. Wow. And uh, yeah, in my case, I I felt like I was getting laughed at by everybody that I knew and loved. So. Not so pleasant for me, uh, but like, yeah, I, like you said, for him, it was just, I'm a teenager. This is lame. <laughs> yeah. Not um, to downplay that at all. I mean, you know, in your teenage no. years, not impressing the ladies is like the end of the world. Exactly. Which is, I'm trying to impress upon my own children that everything they take so seriously is not going to matter once they graduate. Yeah. 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 And everything they're not taking seriously is. That's a very hard lesson. to Probably. Impart. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, good luck with that. It's um, tough getting through to kids. This is going to go on your permanent record. Permanent okay. Record. Permanent <laughs> record. Permanent record. I've actually, I've actually considered actually drawing up a... Go ahead. Go ahead. You were going to say something? I was going to say, I've actually thought about drawing up a false permanent record of my own and hauling it out and telling the kids that I had detention in third grade for pulling on uh, Molly Shannon's uh, pigtails. See, it's permanent. I still have it. <laughs> yes. Right. Like give it, make it all official with a U.S. Yeah. government seal and everything. And I didn't get a job promotion last year because of this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want to go real dark with it, you'd be like, Christmas is canceled this year because of my permanent record. They're, oh. they're garnishing my funds. <laughs> no, I'm not that cool. I'm not that cool. Yeah. Now, that's, that's a laying little- Santa out in the front yard with a shotgun wound. That that I could do. Oh. But. <laughs> you guys laugh. That's what I did this past Christmas. What'd you say? I said you guys laugh. That's what I did this past Christmas. Oh, you did. <laughs> Mannequin, couple pillows, Santa outfit, twenty-two shotgun. It was hilarious. I mean, hilarious. was it? Wait, was this for Halloween or for Christmas? This is for Christmas. <laughs> nice. You know, when it's time to ha- when it's time to have a talk, what better way to have it than uh, hey, Santa's dead, so uh, you can stop. Him. <laughs> well, I just think that in you know another thirty, forty years, that uh, my four year old daughter is going to be on one of these podcasts, and that's going to be what she talks about. Right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> 
So my dad caught mommy kissing Santa Claus. <laughs> so he shot him. <laughs> Uh, so did you have any, uh, you know, was there anything that actually terrified you as a teen? Um, not so much. Cause as a teenager, I was one of those that didn't really think I had much of a future. Okay. I was pretty convinced I was going to die in some horrific accidental way before I ever turned 18 or 19. Reading horror novels. will do that. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, I did, I was pretty fearless. I didn't, I didn't fear anything. I didn't shy away from anything except girls. Um, no, I was, I was a stupid kid. Was there anything, uh, at that point in your life other than maybe girls that, uh, really excited you or thrilled you? Hmm. Well, at that point, that's when I really started getting into writing. Okay. Cool. And, uh, there was a long time where I kept on trying to write one single story and I could never get it all the way through. I started writing on the first home computer my parents got. Uh, and then they got rid of the computer and uh, my files with it. Then I started writing in a notebook, and then the notebook got stolen. Then I started writing in a different notebook, and that got ruined when my backpack got submerged and soaked in water. I mean, it's just repeated attempts to start that seemed the universe was trying to sabotage me. <laughs> I was about to say, see, you know, that's the point where you ask, like, all right, so is something trying to tell me something? <laughs> exactly. So is this one of the three that you've uh, been working on? No, it's not, actually. Though I have hinted at it uh, on online posts on Reddit here and there. Uh, it's been a work that has been on the back of my mind for a long time. And I think if I ever actually get to the point where I don't actually have to work 40 hours a week for a living, I might just get around to writing. Preach. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. But it's I've sort of nicknamed it in my head Entanglement. After okay. Quantum Entanglement, the idea that two... Uh, disparate particles can be linked in such a way that they reflect their states across any distance instantaneously, regardless of the speed of light. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of a person who, every time they experience some type of significant change, uh, when they go to sleep and then wake up, their consciousness changes. When um, they may get uh, knocked out or overly emotional or Anytime a certain certain mental state is reached, um, they switch and they go from being themselves uh, in their normal everyday life to some themselves in a much older body, alone on a world that's been absolutely decimated by some type of apocalypse. Hmm. And what they do as a child can affect their life as an adult in that burned out hulk of a world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found myself writing similar uh, aspect stories like that before. Like it's uh, it, it's kind of like if you've seen the film Arrival. And spoiler if anybody hasn't seen the film, but uh, in the end you find out that uh, the gift that the aliens give us is a cyclical, almost fifth, almost fifth dimensional understanding of time, where she unknowingly or unintentionally jumps in between different timelines. I suppose I should have asked if you've uh, seen the movie. I, I had not actually. No. Um... So I can see the similarities. Mine was more, it was going to be both the horror of trying to survive with literally nobody else left on the planet, but also the fact that yeah. if what he could do affects the later timeline, which is going to be something 10, 15 years later, is there a possibility of stopping it? Mm. And then as they you know think about that and research that and Google things as their younger self, they realize that if they do stop it, they're going to create something akin to a paradox 
and they might actually cause it. Okay. Yeah. I can see that potentially uh, playing into uh, what you're doing right now in The Fall of Man, um, which, since Chris has not read this, uh, I think I may, I, I know I've introduced him to um, the phenomenon, mm-hmm. but The Fall of Man is po- supposed to take place, what, 10,000 years later? 40,000. 40,000. 40,000. Really? 40? I thought it was 10. Don't they come every 10,000? No, no, they come every 40,000, but every 10,000. All right. It's based on on the movement, literally, of stars within our galaxy. Uh, Certain parts of the galactic arm get closer to certain other portions every 40,000 years. But there's also smaller, spiral, smaller movements in our local area, which repeat every 10,000 years. And the idea is that these creatures, these these entities, these beings that are coming into proximity to us every 40,000 years and causing these global catastrophes and basically trying to end all life in our solar system, uh, that there are smaller cycles of that contact every 10,000 years where human beings can use some of those energies. And it's what led to the idea of magic or mysticism, sorcery, is that every 10,000 years men who understand or, or who can manipulate materials to meet certain recipes or prerequisites can use those powers. Interesting. I guess what confused me is <clears throat> possibly the mention of both 10,000 and 40,000, but also if the fall of man is taking place 40,000 years later, then that would mean that there are there were three increments of 10,000 before that. Yes, there were. But I haven't heard you mention, or I don't remember seeing you mention that in the fall of man yet. Have you? Well, the fall of man, well, to compare, the, the phenomenon went for 184 chapters. Yes. Um, right now, we're still in the 40s for fall of man. Fair. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, also, I mean, if it's in the plan, that's, that's, fair, that's a fair answer. I was just asking, has it been mentioned and I just didn't notice it? Well, it's not explicitly been mentioned. Okay, it's not something that some characters outright stated. I tend to avoid that. I think it's lazy writing. But it has been hinted at, mentioned, uh, hinted at, or uh, sort of alluded to through certain certain parts of the project. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to give too much away for anybody who hasn't read either of them, but I, I can think of a particular character in mind that would be uh, capable of having that opportunity. Um, and I think you'll probably know who I'm talking about. <laughs> I can think uh, of two that meet that, meet that description, actually director Gilead and, uh, the specimen actually, neither of whom are who I was thinking of. Hmm. That's interesting. Really? Who? Are you? Okay. Let's go ahead and put it out there. <laughs> who, who are you thinking uh, of? I can't think of the guy's name, but he's the one that's sent back in time. Ah, okay. I'm talking about, uh, Spock. No, Victor. <laughs> Maybe. I think that might have been his name, yeah. But this is going way off topic of the uh the interview. Um I don't even remember where we were. <laughs> teenagers? Um, I believe we were finishing up uh adolescence. Yeah, teenage years. Uh where oh, my I was, went, how I was writing. Well I was asking what was uh what were you excited by in your teenage years and you answered writing. Yeah. Um, so what was it about writing that you, what enjoyment, what, what direction, you know, what did that open up for you? Well, for me, it was 
it was the ability to go ahead and get onto paper what was in my head. Because when something's in my head like that, I need to find some way to express it. I need a way to get it out in the world so I can stop obsessing over it. I know the feeling. Yeah. And uh, it, it drives me crazy. It's, it's like an itch in the back of my head that I can't scratch. And uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, that's exactly what happened when I wrote Apple White. I, I had a dream uh, that I could not get out of my head until I put it put it out there. And so I, I literally had to drop everything that I was doing as far as starting The Fall of Man or any other story and write Apple White. I had to get it out before I could move on to anything else. So some expression. Yeah. I know the feeling as I play guitar, I've played on and off since I was in high school or early college. And uh, there have been times where I'd wake up with a melody in my head. And it's one of those things where if I don't figure out, get up, get grab the guitar, figure out how to play it, then I'm just going to lay there in bed and it's going to repeat over and over and over again in my head until I, I do. Otherwise, I won't go back to sleep. So I feel you. <clears throat> um, so let's move on to adult stuff. Uh, right. What what are some of the bigger influencing things that you uh, have found as an adult that you have enjoyed? Well, well that I've enjoyed or that, it's, that have inspired me or, or moved me towards my love of horror and the genres that I work with. Answer them both. Okay. <laughs> well, what I've enjoyed. Um, being a family man. Uh, having kids. Um, I... Uh, I have two ex-wives. I have a most recent ex wife I had a child with. Between all of them, I have seven children that I consider to be my kids. Um, okay, the, the qualifier there for a second, I was about to say, wow, but then you then you said that you consider to be your kids. <laughs> yeah. Because I had two kids with my first ex-wife, two kids with my second, one kid with my most recent ex, and she had, she brought two kids to the table before I, you know, and I, been, I was with her for five years, long, and that's four years longer than their bio dad was ever in their lives. So I've always been their dad being a parent and trying to turn this floppy pink mass of humanity into something along the road to being an adult human being and capable of taking care of themselves. It's an extraordinary task. It's an extraordinarily difficult Mm. task, but uh, it has immense rewards along the way that that's what I found. I've enjoyed as an adult. Now, when it comes to what has inspired my work, that's been all the other parts of adult life. Mm. Uh, Marine veteran. I only did four years. I never went anywhere, did anything horrific. But the soul suckingness of being in a military occupation uh, job, military occupation being a very different thing. Um, mm. And then uh, working 40 hours a week, every week for the entirety of my other adult life for companies that did not care for me for goals that I did not agree with to earn money to spend on things that I do not need. The whole bit of of adult working life and society has inspired me to horror. (laughs) (laughs) Understood. (laughs) Consume. Obey. Mm -hmm. Right. Or yeah, like I was going to say, you know, when you, you went from the, um, the joy and experience of child raising to what inspired me is like, yeah, what inspires you are the things that are awful in life, you know, the, or the, the not happy things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Any, uh, any particular works of fiction or nonfiction that stood out to you as, uh, impressing on you in, in these adult years? Uh, well, 
nonfiction, I'm very much a military history buff. So World War II being the biggest conflict in human history, really, a lot of the horrors that came with that, Unit 731, the Holocaust, even American internment camps of the Japanese in the Southwest, finding out every bad, evil, cruel thing that mankind is capable of when led down the wrong road through authoritarianism certainly inspired me uh, as far as what could be possible, should be possible, going the other direction. Uh, but it's also- I just have to stop you and ask for a moment. I, I just have to stop and ask, in, in light of what you're saying here, um, why the Marines? <laughs> of, of all the branches, why the Marines? <laughs> well, why the Marines? Because they were the hardest. They were the most difficult, the hardest basic recruit training in the world. I wanted to show I could beat that. Got it. Okay. I The reason I say that is because, for example, my uncle being a retired Marine, not, not ex-Marine, former retired Marine. Good um, yes. You know, as the advertisement says, we don't take applications, we take commitments. You know, there mm-hmm. are, there's a definite specific mindset that they are looking for. Um, and I don't seem to fit the profile. I didn't want to say that because that's not necessarily (laughs) true. Um, Although some people who are very military minded could interpret it that that way. Definitely. Yeah. But I would say that uh, expressing some of the views that you're commenting on while still in the service uh, might have been challenging. (laughs) Well, Um, that that is certainly true. I remember uh, at one point going over a training schedule. Yeah, I, I was in comms, okay. communications, working with radios and satellite communications and crypto analysis and things of that nature. And they were going over the, the training schedule and it included uh, several unit runs and some uh, PT and things of that nature at the exclusion of certain technical trainings, which were pretty critical. Okay, mm-hmm. And uh, I expressed little bit of disagreement there and uh, I was taken apart uh, taken aside by my NCO and he asked me as ridiculous high school level sort of punishment to write an essay on the importance of physical training to have to him by the next morning really yes I was 21 years old in the Marines my third year and being made to write an essay overnight I mean at least he didn't make you write anything on a blackboard no no blackboards but it had to be six pages single-spaced one night. <laughs> so I did. I, I, I did. I wrote it. I sat down. It took me about four hours, but I wrote out the six pages, single spaced. And I gave it back to him and I'd broken down the usage of uh, armored personnel carriers and uh, marine air units to transport units across distances and how moving at speed in a combat zone at a flat out run it left you at risk to IEDs. And I basically took a point, his entire viewpoint from the base up. To show that, yes, it is important to be in physical fitness for a short-duration fire firefight. It is not important to be in physical fitness for long-distance running, where you mm-hmm. just put yourself at risk of being blown up because <laughs> you didn't see that thing on the side of the road. And he took it, and I didn't hear from him for two days. And then he came back to me, and he said, you made some good points. And that was it. That was the end of it. <laughs> and he didn't get on to me for, didn't get on to me for, for 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 wanting to replace a pt session with some technical tr- training that we had to do for our actual work anymore he didn't have a problem with that hmm i mean i i could see that uh how can i say this um 
I want to say the words picking your battles, but that's not even really the right phrase no. either because mm-hmm. it's it's almost aside the point or mm-hmm. beside the point that it's like, you know, from an instructor's point of view, I understand that you made, you, you took issue with something, mm-hmm. but I'm the authority and I gave you an instruction, you followed it and we're done now. We're going to continue exactly. moving on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't even, there doesn't even need to be a discussion. It's okay. You made some good points. They don't matter. So move on. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. We still went to PT. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that was uh, nonfiction. What about fiction? Um, well, there's so much fiction I consume in my adulthood every day. Uh, wow. And that's just watching yeah. Fox News. So, but oh. piss. <laughs> Um, no, uh, so much fiction out there nowadays. I mean, everything from the, the MCU to, uh, modern writers like Diane Simmons and the Hyperion series to everything that Stephen King does in writing on film to modern political theater. It's so much of it. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, it's, it's like, you're asking me to pick out, pick out a grain of sand on a beach as the most perfect grain of sand. Yeah. That's a good analogy. I'm stealing that. Do you see any common threads about uh, the fiction that you do enjoy? Good versus evil. Failure as a man. Inevitability of fate. There's lots of common threads, actually. One that I've definitely tried to explore myself is the inevitability of fate. Is the idea that if something happens, no matter how much you want to do anything about it, no matter how much you think you may have the power to do about it, sometimes you're just going to get gobsmacked by reality. I mean, you you introduced me with my most well-known work, The Phenomenon. One of the things that I've been criticized for is that the characters in the story of The Phenomenon have very little agency to affect their fates. But that's how reality works a lot of the time. You know, I mean, if, if you are living your humdrum nine-to-five life, taking your wife out for dinner and dancing every other Saturday making sure you're at the kids' football practices and cheerleading practices and everything. None of that is going to avoid your fate if your fate is to be struck by a meteor from space at 47 and killed along with 15,000 other people. Nothing you did mattered, okay? And the phenomenon is a lot like that. It comes, it obliterates. Nobody has any say in it. I don't know if I completely agree with that. I mean, having read it, I mean, there are... There are characters who, how can I say this? They have agency, um, but I think what you might be saying is their agency doesn't matter because, okay, if you have agency to do something and you do it and end up dead, then, you know, what? there could be some people who say that that equals no agency. I dis- I personally would disagree. Um, and then there are other characters who do have agency and do things and they succeed, but they had the agency where they could have made the choice not to do those things. Like they could have run away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, at least for me personally, I would disagree with that criticism, but I see your point of, you know, your response to that is, well, yeah, you do have some agency, but that doesn't always mean you're going to succeed because that is right. life. Right. Um, and, and there's uh, some people who have agency who could make it, yeah. uh, who could change things. And they simply don't because it's advantageous for them in the moment not to. Yeah. So what do you think, uh, 
what do you think scares you or excites you about these things that you mentioned, good versus evil, limits of man, and inevitability of fate? Well, I think good versus evil is a very obvious trope. I think everybody gets excited by it on one side or another. Um, whether you watch superhero movies where good always triumphs, or you watch horror movies where good thinks it triumphs, it doesn't really, because there's always that possibility of a sequel. Or a cost. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's... That's all of mankind's fiction right there. It's good fish, even in one shape or form or another. True. I, I've yet to read a story that can't be broken down into good versus evil in some kind of way. Um, as far as fate, I've gone over that a little bit. And there can be good fate and there can be bad fate. Me, I tend to go towards bad fate. Tends to be a little bit more realistic. Um, okay. Some people go to good fate and Applewhite explored that just a little bit, but not really. As I said, reality doesn't tend to work out that way. When it comes to the depths and breadths of mankind's experiences and what humanity is capable of, I think that excites me because it's so outside the range of most people's normal, dreary existences. You know, we, we, we look at go to restaurants and we pay money and we eat food cooked by other people we go home we cook for ourselves regardless of eating and then you have these other people who are sitting behind barbed wire who have not eaten in a week and would give their right arm for the privilege of either way you know mm. and the people who are going about their normal business don't even think about it i do mm. i think about it a lot about the worst of humanity and how good i have it you know i've done some uh contracting for the military in the past and um in my tenure talking with many of the people that i had worked with there was a piece of information that i learned about that i thought was very um uh well part it's relevant to what you were just saying about the limits of man um but also relevant to reality Mm -hmm. um and that is there's a phrase not just in the military but you know police and, and other branches as well that, um, you know, in a lot of situations, you do not rise to the occasion. You fail to your, your default to your highest level of training mm-hmm. is as, as it's put. And, you know, there are some people who manage to get lucky and rise to an occasion. Um, but there are a lot more people who die, uh, because there really was nothing else they could do. And in their last moments, they default to whatever the highest level of training was, and that's just the end, you know, they, they try it and fail. And like you say, that's, that's realistic. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, it plays to a lot of the naivete of people who have risen to the occasion or gotten lucky. You know, you, you see people in the media in Hollywood or in government who say that if you just do your best and work your hardest, things will work your way. Of course they could say that they're, yeah in Hollywood, they're in government, they're at the highest levels, because things did go their way. Yeah, They have no idea of the thousands of people who tried doing exactly that and failed miserably. Yeah, survivor bias. Exactly. So, as an adult, do you have uh, a group of friends that are still into horror? Or is it just a diverse group of friends in general? I have a very small knit group of friends as an adult. Yeah, tends to happen as you get older. The circle gets smaller. Yeah. And we have a very diverse group of interests. I'd say I'm the only serious horror guy in the group. I mean, okay. as far as actual frightening, terrifying, blood-curdling, 
abyss of mental depression and horror kind of fright. And then, of course, I've got a friend who just loves, like, scary movies. <laughs> so Everybody loves scary movies. Yeah, exactly. That's... They just don't know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just haven't found the right movie yet. Right. Yeah. Okay, so maybe not as much as a social dynamic as when you were in your teens, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of having the questions is to find out what the situation is. Yeah. So any uh, anything happen as an adult that literally terrified you in reality? I can think of one time, really, where I was truly personally scared. I had a hernia a couple years ago, mm-hmm. probably eight years ago now, and uh, my financial situation did not really work with me getting it fixed through the insurance I had through my work. I had like a $12,000 deductible or something, and that was more than half my yearly take. Well, when it finally got operated on, six years later, it was the size of a softball. And uh, because of the size of it and because of how old it was and because of my physique, I'm a big guy, they could not do it laparoscopically. They had to do the full-on, got-me-like-a-fish kind of surgery. And uh, they told me I could die on the table. Wow. And I wasn't scared of that. My my fiance at the time was my girlfriend at the time was she she was terrified of it. I was not because I was at that point convinced I was just going to live forever. But when I woke up from the surgery, the very first time I woke up, still groggy from the anesthesia, they were trying to shove a mask on my face that was sort of like a CPAP machine, I guess, where it, where it pushes and pulls to help you breathe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was completely off rhythm from how I was breathing. So it was trying to push air down my throat. I was, I was trying to breathe out. And it was trying to pull air out of my lungs as I was trying to breathe in. Mm-hmm. And it was about 10 seconds of consciousness of fighting the nurse trying to put that thing over my mouth and not being able to breathe and the unbearable pain in my gut and the sudden very strong urge to vomit. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to pop my stitches if they're there or staples or whatever I've got. And my guts are going to be all over this floor and I'm going to die. And then I went unconscious. Hmm. Um, and it was just the fact, Oh, I'm going to die now. And then black. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't. First of all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I only realized that. Yeah, later. I can understand how like, uh, those two things happening right after each other. That's, you know, I mean, perception is everything. So in, in your mind, that totally can be considered as, oh, I just died. Yeah. Yeah. I had something similar when I was a child. Um, my first stepmother uh, was not a pleasant lady uh, to me. She apparently was very nice to everybody else, but hated me uh, because <laughs> I was not her child. Um, to cut a long story short, um, she wound up slamming my chin into a linoleum floor and cutting a nice big gash in the bottom of my chin. Ooh. Fortunately, my father was coming home earlier that day and caught her red handed, uh, saw what happened, rushed me to the hospital, uh, so they could put stitches in my chin. And the last thing I remember is a big white sheet with a circle in it coming down over me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was out, but you know, seeing that sheet come down over me. I mean, aside from the pain being terrifying, I mean, that also terrified me because, you know, I didn't know what was happening. Mm-hmm. I didn't know why there was this big sheet covering me. Um, yeah. And then I was out. Um, has that caused you to change your behavior as an adult? Long answer. Yes. Um, short answer. No. Interestingly enough, 
I still do most of the same things I do day to day. Still have a lot of the same personal habits. Uh, for the longest time, I quit smoking after that surgery. A couple of weeks sitting in a hospital bed where you can't smoke since it tends to do that to you. It facilitates quitting smoking cold turkey. Only yeah. very recently took that it back. Forces. Yeah, much to my chagrin. But uh, we have a friend in the same boat. Sorry, go ahead. Long answer, yes, it, it has changed me because I no longer really am afraid of that blackness because I've been there. And I, I myself am not religious. I'm an atheist. I, I don't I should say I'm an agnostic atheist. I don't claim to know one way or the other, but I don't believe. So having faced that Same. blackness doesn't really scare me anymore. I mean, in a way, that's a good thing. Yeah. And in another way, it could be a very, very bad thing if I do something monumentally stupid. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. 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 Sometimes healthy, there's a... Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, I was I say, if I do something monumentally stupid, unfortunately, I have a very long history of doing monumentally stupid things. It's a character trait I'm trying to grow out of. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it's not easy. Mm. How about Halloween as an adult? It's mostly for the kids. I mean, I enjoy getting you know cheap candy in the weeks after, but um, mostly Halloween is, is for the kids. But that's because I've been severely limited in what I'm allowed to do as far as Halloween. <laughs> is this a significant other decision? <laughs> well, it's a, Robert, you can't traumatize the kids just for giggles. Oh <laughs> yeah but it's so funny and they'll learn exactly yeah I'm like it's character building you know if a claw swipes yeah. them out of the sewer grade they know not to go down there right <laughs> yeah if the bath bombs you know that they got in their in their in their uh little goodie bags turn out to uh make the blood uh, make the water turn blood red and froth and, and throw out steam they will learn not to trust things given to them by strangers Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my um, I, I could have used a little bit of that uh, in my case. Like, my dad took me to see Poltergeist when I was, again, in, like, first or second grade, maybe. maybe One of the greatest films ever made. I don't know about for a third grader. Um, well, maybe not for a third grader, but I, I had to introduce <laughs> it to another adult here in the last few years. Mm-hmm. They'd never seen it. All they'd seen was all the derivative gags and jokes off the Simpsons or Family Guy about Poltergeist or whatnot. Yeah, never seen the original. Shame. I mean, as an adult, I can see it now and I'd be fine with it. But yeah, as a kid, there were a couple scenes there that were not so good. Yeah. But my dad enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. My dad enjoyed not only the movie but my reaction to it. Of course. Yeah, that's part of the best part of adulthood. So I think it was more for his enjoyment than mine. In a lot of ways, I think that modern society has tried to shelter children too much. I can't remember if it was Jack Black or if it was George Carlin. They had a bit about being offended. And the response to somebody who said, well, I'm offended, was, so what? So what? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you're offended. So that doesn't give you authority. It doesn't give you power. It doesn't give you any kind of right to insist on anybody else changing their behavior. Yep. Being offended is just a sign that you do not know how to cope with adulthood. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, you know, part of my background from the reason that Chris and I are a good match for this podcast is Chris is a huge horror buff and I have more of an interest in the psychological end of things. And, you know, I spent a number of years in therapy and 12 step stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I learned, although I fortunately, I personally never had a huge problem with it, that in particular, but one of the things I learned is, you know, having the tools to deal with my own emotions mm-hmm. and that, you know, if you have the tools to deal with it yourself, then you don't need to change the world. The world doesn't have to change for you. 
Exactly. And, you know, our, our disclaimer at the start of this podcast is to say, you know, if you're not ready for that, go away, take care of yourself. And when you're ready, come back and join us. You know, I heard that and I loved it, but I would definitely agree. There are some, some people that, and I don't even, I'm not trying to shame them or, or talk down or talk badly about them. I mean, they, they exist. They are in the place that they are. They need help. I'm not saying that they don't, uh, but the help that they require personally, I think, and it sounds like you would agree that the help that they need is to learn the tools to help themselves, not mm-hmm. necessarily that yeah. they need to change the world. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's a conversation for a different podcast. So back to the horror stuff, is there, now that we've had this conversation about, you know, the three phases of your, your life, looking back over your life as a whole, is there, what movie would you say you've watched more times than any other, or what book have you read more than any other? And it could, that doesn't have necessarily have to be horror related, although you can answer both if you want. I'd have to say that the movie that I've watched most often, uh, from, from beginning to end is 12 monkeys, honestly. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. It's got multiple angles to it, too. You can watch it numerous exactly. times and still discover things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's my favorite movie. I've shared it with probably 100 people at this point. I've never seen it before because it did not do so well as far as the box office went. But um, Which is funny, being that I'm not a huge movie watcher, but I've seen it, and I did like yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, 12 Monkeys. Just the, the idea, again, can't escape your fate. Mankind is capable of absolutely horrible things. Like was released intentionally. And the errors that can be made along the way that they thought it was released by some kind of terrorist group, some type of political movement, when in fact it was just one man, one man who was sick in the head. Yep. Ended the world. Yep. Looking back over, again, your entire life now, uh, do you see any common threads about what kind of horror that you like in terms of like uh, genres, cannibalism, occult, metaphysical? I'd have to say... If I'm going to watch a horror movie, like if I, if I have a choice between all kinds of different varieties of horror movies and I don't know who's in them, I don't know what the plot is, I'm going to have to go with psychological thrillers. You know, nothing, nothing metaphysical, oh. nothing supernatural, just the, the threat and horrors that real life and, and human beings can bring. And I, I admit, my writings don't necessarily reflect that. My uh, phenomenon, of course, was eldritch horror. Uh, combined with sort of military thriller. Uh, Applewhite wa- had more of a religious bent to it. Uh, it was more supernatural horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Fall of Man is, is straight-up sci-fi horror. Yeah. So how, would you def- how do you define psychological horror, then? Where the person is afraid because of their own mind, where they're afraid because of what they think, not necessarily what is true, or because of what they, what they aren't thinking. You know, they don't have a good grip on reality. Okay. Yeah. Recently, Joker actually took a, a play on that because, you know, it turns out a lot of the things that we were seeing throughout the course of the movie was in his head, not necessarily in reality. Well, that was part of the thing was it was a question of how much of this is in his head and how much is reality. Unreal, unreliable narrator. One of my favorite things. Right. Yeah. It's always good. Any, uh, any idea why it is you like those things? Maybe because I like being surprised at the end. Yeah, the ambiguity. I like not knowing. I, I mean, at the end, I, I especially love at the end if I still don't know. Uh, another movie that's outside the horror genre, but has that, the original Total Recall. At the end, you don't know if it's a dream, or if that was reality, if it was programmed, or if it was half of each. Right. Yeah, they did kind of leave it open at the end of that. Yeah. 
Okay. Then you get to see Arnold's eyeballs explode. Well, that too. That and that one chick in the bar. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So now that we've narrowed in on some of the things that you uh, enjoy, uh, sort of one question left, which is why horror? Because, you know, there could be any other number of things that could trigger these kinds of interests. Like, for example, you just mentioned Total Recall, which is not really horror. No, um, I, I, I do have a, a huge, huge love for sci-fi as well. Uh, and I think that shows in a lot of what I've done. But why horror? Because sometimes science, science fiction just about everything you can think of in science fiction has been done in some way, shape, or another. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's been done very well, Isaac Asimov and others. Horror, there are some very good horror writers out there, but I don't think they've really pushed the boundaries of what can be scary. Even even in the phenomenon, when people ask me about what's the worst thing I put in, when I wrote the phenomenon, and as I'm writing Fall of Man, I am pulling my punches. The things I think of mm-hmm. are much, much worse than what I put down. Uh, is so is that coming in the fall of man? <laughs> yeah. I've thought about it, but at the same time, I do want my writings to be accessible by those who might not be ready for that. You know, I, I mentioned uh, in fall of man, there was a chapter where a woman goes and explores a police station and understand this is, this is 10 years after the world's basically ended. She goes and she explores a police station and she finds that in the overnight cell, the drunk tank, there was a group of men who were in there overnight for one reason or another. And the policeman who'd been set to guard them overnight in that little substation had died in the phenomenon, in, in, in the, the cataclysm which ended modern society as we know it at that point 10 years earlier. But it had not killed them, right. and nobody else came for them afterwards. Mm-hmm. So there was the remains of six men in this cell who had had to live out their remaining days after the world ended with no help no food, no water, nothing but themselves. And I hinted at the sorts of things that might have happened in that cell, but I didn't go into detail. Right. Hmm. Now, those were six adult men. The phenomenon came in, and if you looked outside at it, didn't heed the warnings that came over cell phones and radios and televisions and things of that nature. If you looked at it, you died. So possible scenarios of small children who heeded the warning, who were old enough to heed the warning, but whose parents didn't, and how their lives went, I've not chosen to write about. Mm. Though, when you think about the population of America, that would be a very large population. Yes. Yeah. So it's an, it's an implied too. possibility that... Yeah. I've implied, I've, I've looted, but the things that I've thought about and the situations that I've seen where people could be stranded, trapped, or otherwise contained and have to figure out how to survive either in the short term or the long term without any resources whatsoever. Those kinds of scenarios and the desperate ends to which they might go have not made it into my materials. And there is a point to which, you know, you have to ask yourself, does it, does it help the story? That's been there are certain, what's that? I said, that's a big part of it too. Yeah. And there, there are certain points where writing that would have helped the story and helped to understand some of the characters and their actions and their reactions. But then there's other parts where it's gratuitous and unnecessary. Yeah. So you mentioned that uh, in, in answering the question, why horror, you mentioned pushing boundaries. Why is that important to you? What else is there to do? I mean, the, 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 it's a common trope online. You know, I was born too late to explore the world, too early to really explore the stars. So exploring the boundaries of human imagination and human fear, that's really what we've got left. Hmm. Yeah, at least at this point. So I'm kind of going back through our notes from uh, from the call. 
and just trying to see if I see any common thread through all of it. You know, I think the one common thread that I'm seeing is touching on when you said being afraid of other people. Um, mm-hmm. As you say, the uh, the limits of mankind, in some respects, some of those limits are, there's a limit to how human we can be. Sometimes things break down and it's almost, you know, scary what people will do when things break down. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what I go for. At the raggedy edge, when there's little to no societal pressure to do the right thing, to be humane or human, what depths can a person go to if they're even still a person? It's like, uh, I don't remember what movie it was, but there was uh, something, maybe Arrival again or something else where there was uh, an alien presence and they were uh, going to eradicate humanity and someone's excuse justifying uh, the fact that we have good times is that it's at the precipice where we change. But I just couldn't help but think of that when you're describing that just now, because I can go the opposite direction too. It's at the precipice where we change. That sounds to me like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost at the world's end. Was that it? Maybe it could have been. But yeah. The point there was that, you know, it's at, at the precipice. We, uh, we prove our worth and, and humanity can be good, but that can be taken in a dark light too. It's at the precipice yeah. where, you know, when you're, left at the moment of survival that you have your darkest moment. Yeah. And the darkness is far more, far more interesting to me than light. Oh yes. Much more entertaining. To put it into maybe another set of words, um, the challenge of holding on to humanity. Cause it is a challenge in certain situations. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, I don't look at it as, uh, no, I, I think I look at it from the opposite direction. I don't think it's the challenge of holding on to humanity. It's the challenge of resisting inhumanity when it could be easier, when it could be more advantageous. Hmm. It was the day the Earth stood still. I looked it up. Ah. The remake. Well, the the one with Keanu Reeves. Yeah, that would explain why I didn't know the, know the line. Wait, they remade that with Keanu Reeves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a uh, Klaatu. Really? Mm-hmm. It was a good role for him. You know, he had very few dialogue uh, lines. <laughs> yeah, he had the whole time. You know, it was good for Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I um, I knew where you're going as soon as you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, interestingly enough, the exact opposite of his problem when he did uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. You're right. <laughs> I don't remember him being in that either. Interesting. Yeah, he was. I guess there's a lot of Keanu stuff that I'm not aware of. He was the young doctor, I think, who was called in. No, he, he was Mr. Harker. He, was, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't the doctor. He was, he was the original... Um, he was the... The financials guy who went to Transylvania to meet with Dracula. Yeah. Then he got nursed to health by he got nuns. Eaten by vampire or lesbian bitches. Got <laughs> mm-hmm. to. <laughs> what a way to go! He got both ends of the stick, really. There, you know, eaten by vampire, <laughs> vampire women, and then nursed back to health by regressive conservative nuns. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's a joke to be made there somewhere. <laughs> Depending on your fetish, either or could be the bad one. Well, yeah, you got to flip a coin. Yeah. Right. So resisting inhumanity—that's an interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's something that's going to come to... I will go ahead and say that's going to come to play in, in, in parts of Fall of Man coming up. Because if you've read the, the most recent couple of chapters, which there was a long, long gap over the holidays up until recently uh, between chapters, things are really starting to come to a head there. It's going to be the beginning of some of the, the more depraved, the, more of the resisting depraved days I was mentioning. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll be looking forward to it. Yes, as will I. I think, yeah, I mean, that really sounds like that's the answer for you is kind of two sides of the same coin, holding yeah. on to humanity and resisting, resisting inhumanity. Yeah, that's definitely um, something I've been, something I'm very interested in. 
Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, this has been a very interesting uh, conversation. I hope you yeah. uh, enjoyed it as well. I did. Um, you know, this is sort of the the idea of this whole thing that Chris and I wanted to do is reach out to different people in the horror business, find out what it is about horror that they enjoy. You know, the idea being that we might come into a couple common themes that a lot of people share, like pushing boundaries. I'm sure we'll run into that uh, for a lot of people, but yep. they're they're will probably be some unexpected responses as well. And uh, I think just the enjoyment of trying to find the, uh, you know, the common finding the common things is interesting, but also finding the uncommon things is interesting too. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned at the start of the call, uh, you've got the podcast for uh, the phenomenon. How's that going? They have actually just completed season three here over the holiday season. And uh, that actually wraps up. Mm-hmm. The Phenomenon Pod, as far as an audio uh, audio drama covering the entirety of the phenomenon, as of the ending of season three, does it is it the end of the book, or is there going to be more after season three? Oh no, it it does reach the end of the book. Oh okay, so Chris might be uh, interested in that. I think he likes podcasts more than reading. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big reader, and I believe I did find it. It's just the phenomenon is the name of the Facebook or the uh, the uh, YouTube channel, right? Yeah, you have a new subscription. So. Okay. Hopefully he'll get many more from these podcasts. <laughs> and again, we'll be writing up a, a bio for you. You can send me whatever text you want there. We'll link to whatever you want there. And okay. thank you to you uh, as well as anybody out there who's listening. Uh, please do come visit, visit us at horrormakesushappy.com. We'll have a schedule posted there to show who we're interviewing next, as well as the list of people we'd like to interview. Uh, if you can help, sorry, if you can help us connect with any of those people, or if you know anybody that you'd like to see added to the list, let us know. Um, you can become a Patreon supporter or link to our social media in general. Just let us know how we're doing or makes us happy.com. 